The 1920s and 1930s were the heydays of organized crime in New York City. There were several mobsters from that period, such as Dutch Schultz and Lucky Luciano, who terrorized the city and made a fortune. Amongst all the organized crime figures in New York, there was one who was different from all the rest. She was a woman. Learn more about Stephanie St. Clair, the queen of the Harlem numbers racket, on this episode of Everything Everywhere Daily. This episode is sponsored by ButcherBox. Summer is right around the corner, and that means cookouts. No matter what your preferred food is for a cookout or a barbecue, ButcherBox can help you make it the best. If you want to serve up some hamburgers, ButcherBox has grass-fed ground beef to make the perfect smash burger. Want to cook up some steaks? Well, ButcherBox has that too, with some of the best cuts of steak, such as New York Strip, ribeye, and filet mignon. Do you like grilled chicken? Well, ButcherBox has some of the best pasture-raised chicken that you will find anywhere. And if you really want to wow people at your next cookout, you can try grilling some of their wild-caught salmon on a cedar plank. Sign up at ButcherBox.com daily and get a special deal. ButcherBox is offering my listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. You can choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com daily and use code daily to choose your free-for-a-year offer plus get $20 off your first order. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. The origins of Stephanie St. Clair are shrouded in mystery. There are many stories about her. Some are true and some are probably fabricated. The reason why there's so much doubt about her beginnings is probably that she wanted it that way. If her opponents didn't know much about her, that gave her an advantage. And if legendary stories about her were told in her community, that didn't hurt her either. What we do know is that she was probably born in either 1897 or 1887 on the French island of Guadeloupe in the Caribbean. The fact that the given dates for her birth are a decade apart is an indication of just how much her origins are a mystery. She attended school and was very clearly intelligent. However, she had to drop out when, at the age of 15, her mother became ill and died. She migrated to Montreal to work probably around the year 1911 and then migrated to New York in 1912. On her trip to New York and the subsequent quarantine period she had to go through, she taught herself how to speak English. Once out of quarantine, almost penniless, she moved to the black community on the island of Manhattan, Harlem. There are several stories about the rough times she had with several men she dated who were involved in the underworld. She supposedly stabbed one boyfriend in the eye with a fork who tried to pimp her out. Another man supposedly was killed while trying to choke her when he accidentally hit his head on the table during the assault. 
She began her criminal career as a low-level drug dealer with a new boyfriend and amassed a small fortune of around $10,000, which would be over $100,000 today. With this money, she decided to go into business for herself, and she started her own numbers racket. Here I need to explain what the numbers racket or the policy racket was. The numbers game was basically an illegal lottery. It was devilishly simple and insanely profitable. A better would select a three-digit number, giving them a 1 in 1,000 chance of winning. They would usually place their bet at a bar, a barbershop, or some other establishment that would be part of the game. You could bet as little as a penny, but bets of a nickel or a dime were also common at the time. The betting slips would then be taken by number runners to a numbers bank. The numbers selected every day would come from some public number source. A common way of selecting numbers came from the digits in the amount of money bet at a local horse race track, the last digits of the previous day's stock price, or possibly even the weather. There were certain cases of people fixing numbers games, but if the numbers were selected properly, it was pretty difficult to impossible to do. The reason the numbers racket was so profitable is that the odds of winning were 1,000 to 1, but the payout was usually 6 to 800 to 1. It is also known as the policy racket. The term policy comes from the same basis as the idea of an insurance policy, as it was a forward-looking risk that was taken. Now, you might be wondering why this was illegal, because of all the things that organized crime was involved in, this was probably the most innocuous. The reason was simply one of taxes. The winners didn't report their income, therefore it was illegal. It turned out that Stephanie St. Clair was really good at running her own numbers racket, and Harlem had one of the biggest numbers rackets in the country. Within several years, she had turned her $10,000 investment into half a million. By the early 1930s, during the Great Depression, she was making over $200,000 a year. She became well-respected in the community and had an over-the-top personality and dressed flamboyantly. She would often be seen wearing a fur coat, expensive dresses, and a turban. She lived at the prestigious apartment building 409 Edgecombe Avenue in the Sugar Hill District of Harlem, which is where many of the Harlem elite lived. She donated money to political causes, which advocated for the rights of black Americans, and read advertisements in black newspapers to educate people about their rights and to call out police abuses. She was very open about her occupation and never hid what she did. She earned many nicknames, including the Queen of the Policy Rackets and Queenie, but most people simply called her Madame St. Clair. In 1929, she was arrested for possession of number slips. In court, she defended herself and basically said she was arrested because her advocacy against police abuse and police who were jealous of her success. She spent eight months in a workhouse, and when she got out, she named the names of all the police officers she had paid off, and dozens of cops got fired. The biggest challenge to her business happened in 1933, when Prohibition ended. Madame St. Clair herself was not involved with the smuggling of alcohol during Prohibition, but the Italian Mafia was. When their largest source of income dried up, they had to find new sources of revenue. One of their primary targets was taking over the various numbers rackets in New York. The targeting of numbers games in Harlem became violent. Dutch Schultz, who ran the mob family out of the Bronx, either wanted to take control or at least get a cut from all of the numbers games in Harlem. Some of the numbers bankers in Harlem were threatened, beaten, or kidnapped, and some were even killed. Madame St. Clair, however, refused to give in to Dutch Schultz. She and her primary enforcer, Ellsworth Bumpy Johnson, went to war with the Dutch Schultz gang. She and her gang would trash black-owned stores that ran betting operations for Schultz. She would get the community to berate black-owned businesses for working with white-owned gambling operations. Once, when one of Schultz's men came to intimidate her, she pushed him into a closet and locked it, and then ordered her men to, quote, take care of him. She eventually tipped the police off as to the location of Schultz's betting operation. 
they raided the building and confiscated $12 million, which would be worth almost $200 million today. As Schultz was at war with Madame St. Clair, he was also having problems with the city as well. He had been targeted by District Attorney Thomas Dewey, and this was the same Thomas Dewey who everyone thought would win the presidency against Harry Truman in 1948, but didn't. Schultz decided to assassinate Dewey and put out a contract on his life. This, however, went too far. The head of the New York's five mafia families didn't want the attention and heat that such a killing would bring down on them, so Charles Lucky Luciano put out a hit on Dutch Schultz. On October 23, 1935, Dutch Schultz was shot in a Chinese restaurant by hitmen who worked for the mob's Murder Incorporated. That evening, as he laid in a hospital, a telegram was sent to his room by Madame St. Clair, which simply said, quote, As ye sow, so shall ye reap. Three days later, he died. Even though Dutch Schultz was now out of the picture, her problems still weren't over. She lost the support she had amongst the police after her arrest when she turned on them and named names. There was still pressure from the Italian mob, so she eventually decided to retire and focus on legitimate business, and gave control of her numbers operation to Bumpy Johnson. Johnson came to an agreement with Lucky Luciano and the Mafia that the mob would get a cut of the Harlem numbers income, but that anything the mob did in Harlem had to first come through Bumpy Johnson. After her retirement, she still brought attention to herself. In 1936, she married, or at least claimed to have married, as it wasn't actually legal, a con man by the name of Sufi Abdul Hamid, who claimed to be from Egypt. He was even more flamboyant than Madame St. Clair was. He was reported to have walked around Harlem wearing a silk turban, a black and crimson-lined cape, a green velvet blouse, and black riding boots. The Harlem newspapers dubbed him Black Hiller, as he was virulently anti-Semitic and had been convicted of stabbing a communist. On January 18, 1938... Madame St. Clair shot and wounded Hamid after learning that he had been having an affair with a fortune teller by the name of Fufu Futum. At her trial, she was able to get Hamid to admit under oath that his real name was, in fact, Eugene Brown, and that he was from Lowell, Massachusetts, not Egypt. She was sentenced to two to ten years in the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility for Women and was released in 1942. After that, very little was ever heard from Stephanie St. Clair again. Unlike her previous life, she kept a low profile and ran legitimate businesses, mostly owning apartment buildings. One of her last mentions in the news occurred in a 1960 article in the New York Post. In a story about the history of the Harlem numbers racket, she was reported to still be, quote, a prosperous businesswoman and living a lavish lifestyle. She passed away quietly and still wealthy in 1969. There were no mentions of her death in any New York newspapers. Before she died, however, she had lived long enough to see the ultimate takeover of the Harlem numbers racket. In 1967, the state of New York established the New York State Lottery. The numbers racket had been taken over by the government. Everything Everywhere Daily is an airwave media podcast. The associate producers are Thor Thompson and Peter Bennett. I have some more boostograms to share with you. All of today's boostograms come from listener Petar. They sent 1,234 sats from the episode The Last Soldier to Die in World War I. They wrote, Sounds like suicide by German to me, R.I.P. Gunther. That is pretty much the consensus. There really isn't any other reason why he would have done that literally at the last minute, as he was well aware that the war was ending. He also sent 102 sats on the episode on Abdul Rahman Ibrahim Ibn Sori and wrote, quote, What an incredible and tragic story. I was thinking that someone should make a film about it, and it turns out someone did. Yeah, if you're interested in watching it, it's a 2007 historical drama from PBS titled Prince Among Slaves, and it's narrated by Moss Deaf. 
I went and checked, and it's available on Amazon Prime for free. Finally, Petar sent another 102 sats on the Pueblo incident episode, and they wrote, quote, Hawaiian sign for good luck. Ha ha ha. Funniest thing I've heard in a long time. Thanks. There were some odd characters in that boostagram, so I think you might have put in some emojis of a middle finger. But yes, if you search for the Pueblo incident, you can actually see the photos of the sailors extending their middle fingers. And they're doing it really casually, so I can see how if the North Koreans didn't know the meaning, they might not have thought anything of it. Remember, if you leave a review or send me a boostagram, you too can have it read right on the show.